am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of your Lord, the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your maidservant, nor your manservant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and your children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord your God the God of your fathers promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Just trying to give you a little bit of an idea of what is happening in Nehemiah chapter 8. It's very likely that as they were asking for the law of Moses, the word of God to be read, that they read from Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6 like I just did or more of the book of Deuteronomy, or scholars debate this, maybe it was some other books from the Torah, particularly those first five books of the Bible. We don't know exactly what they read, but we know that they must have read quite a bit because they say that they read Scripture for six hours. And you thought a 30-minute sermon was long. Can you imagine 30, 
six hours of just reading God's Word. I think that would be kind of cool, actually. You want to try it? Reading God's Word. As we open to Nehemiah chapter 8 and we find them reading God's Word, we find this happening because the walls have been rebuilt. The gates have finally been hung. Jerusalem has been restored. And remember, the purpose of doing that whole project was not to build or rebuild a beautiful city and to have a nice fortress from the other nations around them. The purpose was in order to restore worship of God in Zion. And in the chapter we are studying today, we see that in order to properly restore the worship of God in Zion, the centrality of God's word must be restored in the community. So I want to invite you, family, to open with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. And as we study this together, I just have one simple goal and hope for us today, that you and I would leave this place seeing how important it is to have the reading of God's word be central in our lives as well. So there you go. I've given you the appeal right from the beginning. You don't even have to sit through a 30-minute sermon if you don't want to. You could go home. No, please stay. That's my goal. That's my hope, that you and I would see how important the reading of God's Word is, how that should be central in our lives. So let's get into the text. Ezra, sorry, Nehemiah, Ezra's going to read it, but Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood, and this is going to be a a journey here, Mattathia, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. On his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malajah, Hashem, Hashbanadana, Zechariah, and Mushalom. Any of you expecting parents, there's some good options in there for you to consider. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. I want to just pause right here and take note of something as we see them reading the word of God together. And that is the prominence that the word of God has among the people. They ask for the book of the law of Moses to be read. And I love how it says all the people were listening, listening attentively for since from dawn until noon, six hours. You, you get this picture that nobody was distracted or multitasking or checking their Instagram feed or text messages. They were hanging on every word that was being read from God's word. 
All the people listened attentively. And not only that, but how cool is it that a special wooden platform is built just for the reading of God's word. Talk about making it a prominent thing in their lives. Let's, let's build this big platform so everyone can see Ezra as he gets up there to read. And they have all those officials, you know, scholars debate, who, who are these names of people? Are they priests? Are they Levites? Are they all of the above? Probably, yeah, Levites maybe. Some important people on either side to add to the prominence of the reading. And don't miss this important detail that as Ezra is reading from this high platform, and it says everybody can see them, can see him, it says that the people do what? They stand up. And the text says that they only stand up after he started reading, which implies that they were sitting down before. Now, when someone is on a high platform, kind of like I am here and you're sitting down, isn't it usually a little easier to see somebody who's on a platform if you're all sitting? It's oftentimes when you stand up, depending on how tall you are. For me, it's not as much of a problem. It's certainly not a problem for the likes of Rob Wilson or Aaron Wilde. But for my wife, Beamy, if everybody stands up, well, it's harder to see. It's easier to see if you stay seated. So obviously, they don't stand to see Ezra better. By the way, this passage is one of the main reasons why in numerous Christian traditions in their liturgical services, they ask people to stand before they read the Word of God. But here's the thing I love about what happens here. Ezra or none of the other officials or Levites ask the people to stand. No one says to the audience, okay, everybody, stand up. Please be seated. Stand up again as we read this one. Okay, stand up. None of that coaching. It's this spontaneous, organic response to hearing the Word of God. When I think about all these details, it's clear to me that, that the Word of God held a prominent place in the hearts of those that gathered. Does it hold a prominent place in yours? Is there time in your busy week to listen attentively to the word? Are you letting it grab your attention? Are you seeking to respond to what you read in there? Does God's word hold a prominent place in your life? I don't think most of us would be here this morning if it didn't hold some valuable place in our life. But if you're like me, I suspect that sometimes you may struggle to make God's word as prominent as it should be in your daily life. Maybe other things take priority over God's word, word sometimes. Maybe our time is structured for so much else rather than Scripture. If that's the case, if you're struggling with regularly reading the Word, if it, making it something that is prominent in your life, can I just give you a few practical suggestions? These are not the be-all, end-all suggestions that will help you, but just to get us thinking, just to get us started. Number one, I think it would be really good, if you don't already have one, to get a physical Bible in a translation that you understand well. You know, I, I love reading the Bible on my iPad. I almost always have just an iPad up here. When I read, I do read it on the phone. There are some cool apps that I use that I'll talk about in a second that have great word uh, uh, plans on them, Bible reading plans on them, but there is nothing like having a physical copy of going through the Word of God where you can write notes and make highlights. I would encourage you to do that. 
And I would encourage you to, to read it in a, in a translation that, that you understand well. And I would also encourage you, like Joy said, to read in different translations, like you guys did in your, in your class. You know, oftentimes if you were to take a passage and read it in five or six or seven different versions, even some of those beautiful paraphrased versions, if you couple it with some of the other more literal ones, it really helps you understand what the biblical language is communicating, what the original language is communicating. Number two, make a plan. Make a plan. It is hard to find time to read the Bible if you don't plan to do it. Set a special time during the day. I love at our, our last uh, church retreat we had when Carl Hafner was our speaker there, and he talked to us about the importance of the word, you know, being the recipe in which our lives are, are founded on. And he said, I have a friend who has this simple plan when he wakes up in the morning. Do you remember it? Scripture before screen. Scripture before screen. I think that's a good plan. Maybe that's as simple as you need to make your plan this morning. When the first thing I wake up when I, is scripture before screen. And I know sometimes your scripture is consumed on your screen. I get it. But may that be the first thing that you look at during your day. Maybe that could be part of your plan. I also just have a, a few examples. There's so many out there. This is a great way to chronologically go through the Bible in one year. I think also Carl had, had given this as a, as a recommendation. There's so many plans out there, but this is kind of neat to do work through the Bible chronologically. Uh, the next slide, uh, version is one that has been meaningful to me and, and my wife as, as well. They have the Bible in one year program, and they have all these other countless uh, topical Bible study um, uh, plans, uh, wonderful resources out there. I just want to encourage you to find one. <laughs> Make a plan. Number three, get creative. I have a friend who writes scripture songs, a creative way in which to read and absorb God's word. I have another friend who puts verses of sticky notes on their steering wheel so that when they commute to work in the morning, they are meditating on God's word. I think this is a habit I desperately need to start so I'd stop having so much road rage. I have another friend, maybe you do this too, who listens to an audible version of the Bible as they exercise. There's so many creative ways we can read God's word. I want to encourage you to be creative. And number four, again, this is not the be-all, end-all list. Find some time to read scripture with other people, especially people who are from a different age group, culture, ethnicity than your own. There is so much richness when we study the word as a diverse group of people together. Came across this book called The Forgotten Famine by Mark Allen Powell. And he talks about this social experiment he did in some of his uh, seminary classes. He had 12 students in one seminary class, and he asked them to read the story of the prodigal son from Luke's gospel. Then he said, I want you to close your Bibles and retell the story as faithfully as possible to a partner. None of the 12 American seminary students mentioned the famine when they retold the story in verse 14 of chapter 15, which precipitates the son's eventual return. Powell then had a 100 people uh, uh, participation with, that he did uh, in the community, same experiment, and the results revealed that only six of the 100 people mentioned the famine. 
The famine forgetters, as Powell called them, had only one thing in common. They were all from the United States. So that was their, you know, cultural mindset. Later, Powell tried the experiment while he was visiting, doing some guest lecturing in St. Petersburg, Russia. He gathered 50 participants to read and retell the prodigal son's story. This time, an overwhelming 42 of the 50 participants mentioned the famine. Why? Just 70 years before, 670,000 people died of starvation after Nazi Germany laid siege to their capital city, and it started this, this, um, this famine. Famine was very much part of their history and their imagination. Our experiences, our cultural perspectives don't change the meaning of the text, but they will help us to find different things to bring out from the text. It is so enriching to study God's word with a diverse group of people. You know, one of the highlights of my week, other than worshiping with you on Sabbath morning, is when our pastoral staff, and I am so proud that we have a diverse pastoral staff here at Calamus Church. When we get together for staff meeting, it's one of my favorite times of the week, and we just read scripture together. We're supposed to only do it for like 30 minutes, but usually we do it for like an hour or more. It's such a blessing. You know, if you were to ask me a number of years ago if I like going to church board meetings, I, I may struggle to know how to answer that question. Not that I, I don't love, if you're, anyone's listening from Mansfield Church, we had a wonderful church board, and, and I, I did like going to church board meetings. Good people there. And we have wonderful church board meetings here at Calamasa because we have wonderful church board members. But you know what I really love about church board meetings? That we spend at least 20 minutes before we talk about anything reading and discussing the Word of God. It's been such a blessing to do that at that meeting, at our elders' meetings, at our finance committee meetings, everything. We start with the Word of God. So there's a few suggestions. There's many more that could be made, but the point is, how are you going to let Scripture have a prominent place in your life? Let's read on. Ezra, praise the Lord, verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I want to pause here again and take note of another detail. How the reading of God's word seems to also involve worship. The people give both physical and verbal responses. And again, Ezra doesn't ask for this. He doesn't say, hey, lift your hands in the air. Like, you just don't care. Maybe the kids don't say that anymore. Or he doesn't say, hey, can I get an amen, church? I used to have a, a professor at seminary who in his preaching class says, if you ever have to ask for an amen in your sermon, it's probably because you have not said anything worthy of an amen. Ezra doesn't call for an amen. They just spontaneously, organically put their hands in the air and say, amen, amen. That beautiful phrase of, we believe and trust in these words. They are true. And then they have this other response. They bow with their faces to the ground. Not like how we often will bow our head for a prayer you know, in our maybe Western culture, our way of, of maybe bowing before God, the text is describing them getting all the way to the floor with their face on the ground. 
reading God's word is also an act of worship. When you read the Bible, are you thinking about it as a worship experience? I loved how we read scripture in the music today and, and combine that with it. But when you are at home reading your Bible and you're just regular devotion time, are you thinking about it as a moment of worship? Are we approaching it as a time of praise, a time we are seeking to lift up Christ, bring glory and honor to his name, thank him for all that he has done? And I don't think this is a small thing. I think this is an important thing to keep in mind because I feel, at least for me, I struggle with this, that we can often approach God's word with an agenda. Something that I do struggle with. God, I need wisdom for this situation. Let me go to your word and find an answer. I need confirmation for this conviction I'm feeling. I, I need an answer to this theological dilemma. I need to, to get the sermon finished, Lord. Sometimes we come to the word of God with our own agenda. But you see, worship, worship gets the attention off of ourselves, off of our own agenda, gets the attention off of what others may be doing around us. It gets our attention even off of our circumstances and puts it fully fixed on God. You know that scripture says that God enters into the midst of our praise and worship. Isn't that beautiful? You know, he's always been there. But we don't always notice that he's there because we're thinking about ourselves, our own agenda, or what other people are doing around us or the circumstances we're in. But worship helps us to focus on our God who is present with us. He inhabits our worship because it's in worship that we get our attention wholly and fully fixed on him. And I know that there are many important reasons why we go to the word of God, but but how much more impactful and meaningful would Scripture be in our lives if we approached it with no other agenda than to just draw near to and lift up the one who gave it to us? I gotta tell you something, when you approach God's word that way, it, it impacts really positively whatever your agenda is. It impacts the circumstances around you. What if we just approached it with that mindset? My agenda, Lord, is to lift you up. Reading on, verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Some scholars say maybe they're helping to translate into uh, the language that now they're used to after being in exile for a long time, or, or maybe they're helping to exposit the word. There's help in, in, in trying to understand it. There's a, a desire to hear and understand the word of God. Verse 9, the Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is, a ho is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. 
last but certainly not least, we have to pause here and note that reading God's Word is meant to be a joyful experience. Amen. Now in, amen. Now in Nehemiah chapter 8, things don't start off so joyful, do they? The crowd is weeping. They are mourning. The text doesn't give us uh, much insight as to why they are weeping. I don't think it's because they're in a six-hour service, because they're hanging on every word, right? They're enjoying being there. But it's clear that they are moved by what was read. I mean, do you ever get moved by the Word of God? You read it, and it cuts to your heart. There's some times when I get up here to, to preach, I mean, you've seen it, and, and, and I've read the text probably 50 times, and I get up and I read it, and it just makes you cry. Sometimes God's Word does that. It's okay if it makes you do that. Maybe they were crying because they were recognizing their own human sinfulness. Maybe they were mourning because they hadn't been attentive or obedient to God's word for some time. You know, when, when the book of the law was discovered during King Josiah's reign and it was read to him, you remember he had that humbling response and tore his clothes and, and wept. And he said it was because all those who had gone before him had not obeyed the words of this book. Maybe that's why they're weeping in this moment. And there is a time and place for grief and for weeping. And sometimes God's word does lead us to tears. But Nehemiah, Ezra, and all the Levites remind them that reading God's word is also a time for joy. They say this is a holy day to the Lord. This is a time to celebrate and be glad, have joy. I can remember a few years back, I once had, had somebody, this is a while back, we were at some conference uh, camp meeting in, in Ohio, and um, we were in a, an outbreak session, and some other pastor was leading the discussion, and we were talking about joy, and this one lady, bless her heart, I think she meant well, she said, you know, we don't really have time to be talking about joy because we are in the last days. You know what we are called to do in the last days? Proclaim the everlasting gospel. The good news that brings great joy. If we are to do anything in the last days, it is to spread joy. And when you have Jesus in your life, when you have his word, you cannot help but be joyful because when you read his word, when you spend time with him, you start to learn how he feels about you. You learn about how much he loves you. You learn about all that he has done for you. And you can't help but be joyful. There's this old parable that's told of this rich, successful, young lawyer, top lawyer in his field. And he invited all of his rich colleagues to his mansion for dinner. And he also decided to invite his father to join them for dinner. The father ended up showing up a few minutes before the uh, colleagues came, and his son pulled his dad aside, and he said, Now, Dad, I, I want you to know that these colleagues that are coming over tonight, are, they're, they're very special. They, they mean a lot to me. I want to make a good impression. So please, whatever you do, don't do anything to embarrass me. Okay, the father said, I, I, I promise. I, I won't do anything to embarrass you, son. Well, the guests come, and they enter into the dining room, and it's just beautifully prepared. The, the, the food comes out, and it's beautifully prepared also, and it's just delicious. The conversation is, is such a delight and, and fun, and everyone's having a good time. 
Finally, when the, when the dinner is over, they all retire from the dining room and head into the study. And that young lawyer and all his colleague friends, they, they sort of sat in a circle in the middle of, of the study there, and they started talking about all kinds of legal things, you know, and, and different cases they had worked on and cases that were coming up. And the father just sat quietly off into the corner near where the bookshelves were, reclining on a chair. And he had grabbed a book from the bookshelf and was quietly reading and pretty soon, in the midst of their uh, conversation about all things, you know, legalese and, and that kind of thing, the father jumps out of his recliner, puts his hands in the air and yells, Amen! Amen! And the son, just like with his head in his hands, walks over to his dad. Dad, what are you doing? You said you were not going to do anything to embarrass me. I'm sorry, son, I'm sorry, but I was just sitting here and I, and I grabbed the Bible from, from, from the bookcase and, and I started to read the part where it says that, that God casts my sins into the depths of the sea. Oh, okay, Dad, I, I got it here. Why don't you give me the Bible? Okay, I'm going to put this over here. Let's, let's just find something else for you to read. And he scans the shelf and he finds an atlas. He says, here, Dad, why don't you read this? This shouldn't, you know, do any harm. Sit down, just, okay, just don't embarrass me anymore. Father sits down and opens the atlas, and the son goes back to talking to his colleagues. And it wasn't but a minute later. The father leaps out of the recliner again, this time jumping even higher, hands raised higher, louder shouting, praise the Lord. The son, I can't, can't believe it, he walks over to his dad, totally humiliated. Dad, what gives? You're just reading the atlas now, for crying out loud. Yeah, I know, and I just read in the atlas that there are some oceans in the world that are so deep at some points that they haven't even found the bottom of it yet. And that's where God cast my sins. And when you, when you learn about what Jesus has done for you, what he wants to do and what he will do in your life, you can't help but have joy. And you know where you learn about that? Right here. This is where all that good news is. You know, family, I think we often look for joy in so many places before we look for it here. Don't we? I know I do that. Maybe we think, oh, if I can just get on that vacation, I'll have some joy. If, if I can just have some time to sit down and watch that new show that's coming out that looks like it's so much fun or... If I can just have some time to, to go play 18 holes of golf, you would think that would bring me joy, but usually it doesn't because I never hit it good. So you think I would learn that every time I think this is going to be a joyful experience, and it's not. If I can just make the grade, if I could just get that job, if I can just impress those colleagues, if I could have less busyness, then finally I could have some joy. And you know, sometimes we do experience joy in those areas. And that's great when we do. But you know, I believe that you and I will experience true joy, the kind that lasts, the kind that is our strength in every circumstance as we read the Word of God. It is amazing to, to fit, sit here and, and ponder how in many ages ago your people stood around to listen to your word, how it changed their hearts and their lives. 
and how we gather today and we read those ancient words and it's changing and transforming our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the joy it brings our life. And we simply want to commit today to make it have the most prominent position in our lives. In Jesus' name.